You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have uh, Ryan Wilson, the co-founder of The Gathering Spot in ATL. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. We're going to dive right into something that's been really active in the community on Twitter in terms of Kamala Harris announcing her run uh, for president of the United States. And one... uh, engineer at Google, I know, you know, she mentioned that she thought that this could ignite a civil war in the black community in terms of tensions and emotions are so high over the candidacy of Kamala Harris. Uh, do you, does that sound extreme Yeah, I mean, in terms in terms of kind of the some of the divisions in the community? Because it touches on race and gender and you know, it's just a very emotional, at least from my perspective, uh, I agree. This is a very emotional topic right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't see it as a civil war that's about to come. I mean, I think that what what Senator Harris best represents is that or, or the challenge maybe that her candidacy is going to pose is that she was a prosecutor. Right. And has been a prosecutor at the, the highest level of her of her state. Right. And so there are a number of uh, cases that she's participated in over time that I think people are going to draw issue with. And I, I think that's part of what you see right now is that the immediate reaction is about people being concerned about, you know, her opinion about, uh, I mean, several death penalty cases and drug-related um, uh, cases and um, where she's had to advocate on behalf of the state. Do I think that that goes to a civil war? I don't. I mean, I think that we're going to have an informed discussion about if she's the right person uh, to represent the community, and then, I mean, ultimately the nation. See, I don't think it's just about uh, her record on criminal justice reform. Actually, hey, you know, she made some mistakes. She's, you know, she's being forced into taking certain positions. Some people get hurt. I could come closer to buying into the candidacy of Kamala Harris if that was the only okay. issue. Is just, to me, there's a... Um, a promiscuous amount of issues, you know, that, that kind of lead up to, hey, when the, the lobbyists and kind of, you know, big relationships, when they're in those rooms, when no one is looking, what type of decision is that political leader, is that president, is that senator going to make when no one's looking and that pressure is on the line? And of course, in the Iraq war, you had Obama, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, voting against the Iraq war, meaning that the pressure was on, everyone's rushing, go to war, go to war. And you had Biden voting for the war. You had Hillary Clinton voting for the war. I mean, if you, from my perspective, uh, if you observe Kamala Harris's trajectory, I got to think that she's definitely likely in that situation in the future to be on the Hillary Clinton and the Biden side, the establishment side. Do you think that's fair? I mean, I think it's it's somewhat fair. I mean, she she has in many ways a longer record than a lot of the people that we're talking about, right? She's just had more time to have more opinions about more issues, right? And so, yeah, I mean, she she has a ton of things that I think people are going to be upset about, yeah, that are outside of criminal justice reform, um, but really going to get to the heart of, um, of other issues. Yeah, I mean— Ultimately, I think people are going to be mad about. I don't dismiss it, though. I mean, I, I think that the time that we're living um, in, I mean, what's going for her is that 
mean, she's a woman of color um, that's going to be shattering a couple of different barriers. I mean, one in, in you know, seeking the highest office in our land as a woman. And, I mean, the second person um, in history, that would be a person of color. And so, I mean, those two things, are, I think, are compelling, especially in the era of Donald Trump. I mean, that, that contrast to, um, to him, I think, is powerful. Uh, I get, like, you know, we shatter barriers, but would you vote for a candidate? If you thought that, hey, this is the type of candidate that's going to go and take over Venezuela or uh, vote to go into Iraq for war or go to war with Iran, would you trade, hey, I get a black president, I get a black woman president, would you trade that? In terms of the symbolism and the kids can see the black people at the top with killing a million <laughs> Iraqis. I mean, is that is that as a human being, is that a fair trade where, hey, I can see this person at the top, but they may be doing dirty stuff. They may be doing questionable stuff. They may be murdering people. But if they're black or if they're a black woman, hey, that's going to give the people this extra kick in, hey, who cares if all this other crazy stuff is done by this leader? Yeah, man, I, I'm with you, but I think that, I mean, the problem with with our country in general, right, is that you can really look at any leader and have those same sort of uh, issues. No matter, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't really matter. I mean, at the end of the day, the United States, for <laughs> its history, has participated in actions that I don't dis- that I don't agree with. Right. And so I can't say that it's, it's a it's so much as a trade, but I mean, but the rea- that's, what, that's what it sounds like, because it sounds like people are saying that Kamala Harris, there is an emotional attachment. She's going to break down barriers for sure. And we just, want that. I want just, America to have a black woman president. Sure. We want that to happen. But if you look at her proximity to lobbyists in Silicon Valley, Google, Facebook, giggling with Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, after the financial crisis, while she was district attorney, she allowed the current Treasury Secretary, Steve Mushnin, to get off the hook in terms of they were doing something shady uh, with, the, with the mortgage. And so, you know, it's widely known that, hey, you're letting this guy and this bank off the hook. That is some part of some suspect dealing and so we call into question you know are you going to bang for the lobbyist special interest groups uh wall street silicon valley are when you get in the office are you going to be banging for them are you going to be banging for us yeah i mean i think that that's a fair question and i think it's a question that has to be asked of all the candidates right this is call me a pessimist right but if you look at most of the candidates that are in the race all the things that you just raised are are certainly in play with them too I mean, the unfortunate part about I mean, the unfortunate part about our political system right now is that to get elected, it takes a lot of money and it takes in many ways having uh, relationships or interactions with businesses that many of us, I mean, some way, shape or form say that we don't like. But it, I, I'm trying I try not to be when I'm, I'm looking at um, any particular candidate to be a person that, you know, solely focuses on some of their negative attributes when those negative attributes a lot of times are the same negative attributes that most of the candidates in the in the field have. I mean, so, like, the, the most... So, 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 so essentially what we're saying is, look, the black candidate who's very close to lobbyists and special interest groups, they needed the money, you know, they have all these negatives, but because they're black, because they're black or a woman that 
hey, we need to cut them some slack and allow them to be, you know, a little dirty no, no, or a no, lot dirty. It's not cutting cutting them any slack. It's it's realizing it's it's using the same rubric, right? So the same rubric that we use with Senator Harris, we have to use with Senator Biden and all of the other folks that you that you, you've uh, listed that are you know, allegedly getting in uh, to this race. We've got to hold all of them to the, to the same standard. And a lot of times, what we don't do. Um, you know, we, we circle in on. I actually think it's a problem. We circle in on one candidate in particular, try to pr- point out all the different ways that we don't find them authentic. Where I mean, their their peers in many ways, if using the same rubric, are not engaging in a you know in a in politics any differently. Okay, so Kamala Harris says the issue of Palestine, our Palestinian brothers and sisters, uh, she. Uh, like Hillary Clinton, similarly, mm-hmm. yeah. Hillary Clinton very dating. similar platforms. If yeah. you look at what Senator Harris uh, yeah. and what Hillary Clinton, the platforms are not that different. Oh, it goes deeper than that. Um, Kamala Harris had a uh, secret meeting that she wanted off the record with the 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 lobby group for Israel for for American Jews. So she wanted it off the record, and so the people when the, when these candidates go. In front of these lobbyists, and the politician says, "No, what I'm going to tell you, this cannot get out. This is special stuff, right?" Okay, Hillary Clinton. Of course, it came out. She didn't want to release the transcripts when she was talking to Wall Street bankers at Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so hey, you don't want to release the transcripts. The media is pressing you to, hey, we want to know what you're telling these Wall Street bankers because because you got a high position. We want to yep. know. She said, no, I'm not going to release them. So they hacked and they ended up getting information about that speech. There's questionable statements from Kamala Harris where where she says that the Palestinian issue is not a political issue. She's writing on one side no matter what. Essentially, she has pretty much positioned herself uh, for this. And, of course, the Democratic Party, they're not necessarily, I believe, going towards a pro-Palestinian position. They're more going, the left is going more to a neutral stance that we're not always automatically for one side. If you go kill 50 Palestinian kids, we're coming to the position where, yes, we're going to criticize that. It's not like we're always going to defend one side no matter what. Uh, And so I think... The Palestinian issue is a uh, proxy for other things, meaning that is that politician going to step out the box and and do what's right? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the thing about politics is that it's about um, it's about what the alternative is, right? And so, um, I, I don't think that there's any candidate that we're that we're going to find in any race, right? That is the perfect candidate by any stretch, right? I mean, I I haven't found one uh, to date in any election that I voted in, perfect, all the way yeah. all the way through local elections, right? And so the contrast to me is really about, and this is this is the problem with with progressive politics in general. We have a terrible time. Uh, we 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 fight with one another so so badly that a lot of times we lose focus on the the actual issue, the the thing that we should be paying the most attention to, is our current president and his administration right i, I mean, disagree with that it, i think that's we're, a, we're, we're in think, terrible times right now yeah i think it's a a privileged position particularly people with pockets people with the wallet to say that black america we need to be focused on Mueller. we need to be focused on trump and how that's going to be resolved uh-huh. and and we just need to play it safe and go to the center meaning that 
our brothers and sisters in Watts, in Harlem, in Chicago, we this this these political decisions they're, they're they impact a lot of lives and most likely if the i believe the corporate democrats get their way based on the trends in the history they're probably going to put a lot of troops back in war so these decisions are really big now i get the Mueller and rush investigation but there's still an opportunity that, hey, you got to get this stuff right. You got to really dive down and go beyond the optics. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think the main problem with progressive politics, again, though, is that that we folks on the right are a lot better at framing arguments. They're a lot better at social movements. So what they do, I mean, if you if you read like books like Rules for Radicals, the right has a does a very good job of framing. Uh, they, they they run as far right as they can and they shift where center is. And that's the thing that we don't do as people on the left. We, we, we play center politics the entire time, never run left. And so our middle is really kind of right of center all the time. And so, no, I agree with you. I mean, to, on, on that level, I think that, you know, it's, it's not, um, I don't look at any of this as an, as an either, or it's not, you know, either you pay attention to you know people of color or, you know, we pay attention to the Mueller investigation. I think we have to pay attention to, to both. Right. And, and we have to challenge candidates by running farther to the left, exposing them to the issues in our communities that matter. But at the same time, it isn't a, a, a bad frame to also point out that like, look, what's going on on the right right now is extremely problematic. I think that it helps actually frame why movement to the left matters. This leads into Bernie Sanders. Are you a Bernie uh, Sanders fan? Not a fan, but I would look at each candidate's position and kind of see who's the closest that reflects my my values and, and what I believe in. So Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, she recently said in her campaign platform that, look, I've seen it. This political game is rigged. It's rigged on both sides. Wall Street, the lobbyists, they have rigged the system. We need to uh, remix the system where money, corporations and lobbyists, special interest groups, they don't rig how the game works in a way where what you vote for and what you want, once that person gets into office— these elements, if you get into office, because the money is, of course, competing with the voters. Uh, but if we change the way money impacts our politics and influences our politics, a lot of these issues go so much faster. So I get it that, hey, we're working with all these micro issues and we need to fix this. We need to fix that. But if you re-engineer the power and influence of money in politics, that black vote, the equity of the black vote goes significantly up because we don't have the Sheldon Adelsons and the big billionaires who pour money into politics to represent our interests. So the black voter needs the money to go down. That should be a big issue. And so if you rank the candidates, if you say that, hey, money in the politics hurts black people. When we examine the, the political system in the United States, the big wallets, all these other groups who have big wallets and they influence politics, it hurts our people because we don't have the big wallets. Why isn't that a top five issue? And so what I'm saying is if that's a top three issue for, for me, and I think it should be for many others, uh, then Kamala Harris, uh, Joe Biden, Beto, Cory Booker, they would score 
Whoa. And so would Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, right? It's like the that I I think it is very difficult, right, to be the beneficiary of a system and advocating truly for its collapse. Right, I, I'm I'm skeptical of people that who's that, advocating for the collapse though. Or, or, I'm not or, familiar or, with that or, argument. Or collapse, I mean, it, maybe collapse isn't the best word, but um, I mean, what you're describing, Senator Warren is is interested in in doing. Right, like it's very hard to be a beneficiary, and I mean, frankly, elected by a system that you are saying you're going to dismantle in some way afterwards. I mean, I don't have any more trust in the ability to be able to do that. Than, than I do. Um, I mean, that's as concerning to me, maybe I should say, as you know, our previous conversation about Senator Harris. Well, it's, I mean, you look at Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, today it was reported she sent a letter to Facebook. Uh, her colleagues, yeah, Chuck Schumer, of course, uh, his daughter uh, is what I would call a lobby daughter. Chuck Schumer's daughter works at Facebook. A senator wanted to investigate, look into Facebook. He told that senator, uh, Warner, to to back off. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, her family owns millions of stock in Facebook. The Facebook elites, of course, really were embedded with Obama and helped him get elected. And we didn't have any regulation. There's no consumer privacy. People, the Democrats, just let Facebook run wild. I mean, I think this stuff is just... It's so blatant. If the Democrats let it run wild, what do the Republicans do? The Democrats, the Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the the Google, the, uh, their candidate this this uh, election is Cory Booker, uh, Eric Schmidt, and I give the Silicon Valley establishment a lot of credit. They've been grooming particularly black candidates, and they they have been playing long ball. They've been investing investing in Cory Booker's company, doing whatever it takes to hook. The black politician who's desperate for money, desperate to kind of be competitive, and they kind of make the deal with the devil. Uh, and uh, I just think that it's 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 pervasive. And the Silicon Valley is more aligned with Democrats. Republicans are more in line with Wall Street. That's 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 in my view. Essentially, the greed that Obama banged against in 2008, the financial crisis of Wall Street, it just went to his side. It just went to Silicon Valley, the tech, the big wallets in, over in California. So I think what we're describing, if you see something on both sides, though, that's that's kind of the, the overall fault in our political system, right? It, it's it's, just, it's less about Republicans and Democrats, and it's more about cases like Citizens United, where we're, we're saying that many of these corporations are people, right? And as a law, I mean, what our fundamental focus should be on is that our political system right now, yeah, it does. I agree with you. It has too much money in it. I think yeah. it's it, there's there's way too many big organizations that have the ability to influence the outcomes of elections. But that to me is again less of a a red or blue thing and more of I mean the fact that our political system overall really needs some ex- examination. And I think that's I mean from money in politics to how we elect people all the way down to the electoral it, it, college. It, is that a top five issue for you? Would you yeah, like I would to say see? so. There's a top five issue yeah, I would, for you. Yeah, I would say so. Right. I mean, like, again, I think Citizens United in cases um, that— Can you, know, you explain sudden, to our audience what's, what's that about? Yeah, I mean, the, the ultimate easiest way to understand Citizens United, and I, to me, it actually connects to a broader— say, if, this, if you want to talk about top five issues, one of the things that we— one, one branch of government that we don't pay attention to enough as people of color and just, I mean, as citizens, is the influence that the Supreme Court has on policy. Right. And, and we we take for granted the influence that that body has. And what we don't acknowledge about it is that historically it has been a very conservative institution. Even the most 
quote unquote progressive cases that we point to day in and day out, a lot of those, if you really step back and look at them, are very conservative um, opinions too, by by so-called liberal justices, right? And so, Citizens United. I mean, to, to get back to that, essentially, um, what it what it allows for, I mean, is it facilitates all of this big big money in politics, um, where the court essentially said that organizations are people, and therefore, because they're people, their ability to be able to participate in campaigns, knowing that, I mean, they have the financial um, wherewithal that goes way beyond the average person, should be considered as people under our law. But again, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a part of a, a long string of Supreme Court cases that are extremely conservative in nature and, um, and harmful to us. I mean, we as people, we as as black folks, people of color, need to be spending more time trying to institutionalize laws by way of legislators and stop appealing to the Supreme Court as a body because it has never proven to be an effective institution for us. I can point that that goes all the way back to even cases you probably like Brett, like Brown v. Board. Not a good, not a not a good decision at all. Where are you from? I'm from Atlanta. I, I grew up mostly in Atlanta. I was born in L.A. but grew up here. Okay, uh, what age did you move to ATL? Uh, first time I moved when I was six. Um, moved here right around the time of the Olympics, and then moved away again to North Carolina. And then I came back. What uh, part of LA? Uh, Inglewood. Okay, yeah, cool. Right. Very familiar uh, with Inglewood. I'm from LA as well. Yeah, Inglewood is first uh, first stop. You're building some amazing things in ATL. How did you get to starting uh, the gathering spot? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting where life takes you. I. Um, so I graduated from from high school here in Atlanta, went immediately to Georgetown for undergrad, uh, spent a lot of time in the diversity and inclusion space, first on campus, and then we kind of moved off campus to working on different community issues, was involved in a whole bunch while I was um, an undergrad. But I went there with the intention of becoming a, an attorney. I wanted, to, I wanted to go to law school immediately after undergrad. Um, Graduated, went straight to Georgetown Law School, and I quickly found out while I was there that I didn't want to be an attorney. Um, I promised my mom that it, I would finish, and so I did that. But for the last two years of law school, um, I started working on what's now the gathering spot. So you graduated from Georgetown? I did graduate. I graduated from okay, yeah, nice, I'm nice. a double Hoya. Yeah, I um, dropped off uh, Syracuse Law first year. Oh, Georgetown and Syracuse, that's, that's, that's no good. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, the inspiration for the business really came about, I was in need of a couple of things. On the community side, um, college is interesting if you look at it, right? There's people from all over the world at a lot of universities. There's speakers coming all the time. Your friends are probably studying different things than what you are. And what I found that when I went to law school, that network went away pretty quickly. I, I was all of a sudden around basically just a bunch of lawyers, right? There weren't opportunities for me to engage with different types of people and that that community that I felt um, as an undergrad just was gone and so the core of what we're doing here I, I tell folks all the time we're not in the space business we're in the community business you'll find a little bit of everybody we host a ton of experiences and connect people through work dining and then through events what was your pitch in terms of what the the gathering spot does yeah I mean so at our core the gathering spots an invitation only private club um, what does that mean? So by way of space, we operate a full restaurant and bar. You have to be a member to dine here at the restaurant. It's open uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. We operate a co-working space. That's long workstations, private offices, 
um, really any work environment that you need. We keep that open 24 hours a day. And um, again, as a member of the club, you can use it. For our audience, uh, if I'm an entrepreneur in Nashville and, I, and I'm stopping over in Atlanta for a couple of days, can that person be a transient guest? So you can apply for membership and not live here in Atlanta, but we don't offer day passes. So okay, to become it. a member of the club, you have to go through a process, right, that um, involves an interview. And ultimately, our team really is looking to maintain balance inside of the club. There's certain really important sub communities that we've formed here. And so, like, for example, a number that I'm really proud of is the 60% of the membership base are women. And to make sure that that stays that way, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to making sure. Would you say that you're more Soho House than we were? I would say we're either one of them. You're, are you, you say you're in the middle whole, or just totally new? We're category? in a whole, a whole different category, yeah. right? So the approach here is um, combines elements of what you'll see. I mean, there's member, there's a membership component. There's co-working as a part of it. But how we come together here and what we do is, you know, with all due respect to those um, those businesses, just very different. It's a different demo, different different way that we go about connecting with each other. You're a subscription business. Essentially, and yeah, in some way, host a lot could, of events. Yeah, so. if you could share this on a on a uh, percentage basis, uh, how much of your revenue is subscription versus the other stuff? So I can't say <laughs> to to um, an exact percentage, but I would say uh, a good bulk of our model is connected to the membership dues and fees. But I mean, we hosted fourteen hundred events last year, and we specialize in corporate functions. A lot of times with the biggest brands in the world um, and so that's an, a pretty significant part of the business as well and then i mean we operate the, the restaurant so there's there's food and beverage that are you know, part of what we do too how did you connect with your co-founder uh so we were on the same freshman floor as uh undergrads at georgetown no expectation of opening a business he's from st croix and um when i graduated or when i was going into law school he was still working in dc as a portfolio manager and started talking to him about the business, needed someone that could help me with the model. He had a finance and accounting background. And so that's why we teamed up, but we spent most of our undergraduate uh, time as roommates. And what type of margins are possible with your business? Let's say you execute your business plan over the next couple of years. So I'll say this, the business has been profitable since its first year. Wow. And so good ones. <laughs> oh. so, you, so you're cash flow positive now? Out of the gate, yeah. We, we ever, ever Since we've opened, yeah. Okay, yeah. very nice. We work is not. Uh, and you know, and that, that kind of speaks to what I believe is uh, a lot of froth in the market where you know, as you saw in 2000 or 2008, 2009, I guess in the real estate case, credit scores, you know, who who needs those and who needs that? In 2000, who needs profits? We can go off clicks. But a lot in the tech space in general, uh, not just black tech, but just in the tech space, in this part of the cycle, which I think is the end, yep. no one cares if you can generate cash flow. No one cares if you can generate profits. No one cares if that business has enough cash to go another six months. You know, I'm just going to raise more money and flip it to another company until this shit stops. Yep. What do you think about that? Because that's kind of seems like the consensus mentality where I'm just going to sell the business and just raise money. Raise money? Sell business? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm not into it. Like, the, the, the thing for me is, yeah, there are a lot of companies that are raising around to just raise another round, right? And I think that what 
uh, TK, who's my business partner, what we set out to do from the beginning was to build a sustainable business model. We paid a lot of attention to how do we make sure that this thing works, right? Actually works, not not working because we have a, a bag of cash in the other room, but like works because we're able to actually see that, you know, people use the service that we provide, have um, invested in the community that, that we're building. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, my parents are entrepreneurs and that's, it's you a, got a lot school. of game from your parents. Oh, a hundred percent. But there's, there's a real Man, fundamental lesson that I, I've had kind of baked in from the beginning was that, I mean, at a very, very basic level, a business is able to care for its expenses. If you can't do that, I mean, I question the success of that business. I mean, there, there are businesses that, that have, that we all use. And if you read the prospectus that comes out, you'll find the entrepreneurs in many cases saying, we don't ever know how it will be profitable. And what for me, you, that's not a business. What would you say to the, the bubble crowd? They will hear you in ATL and we're, you know, you've been profitable from the jump. You got your thing going. You got a lot of things popping. But that bubble crowd in Silicon Valley uh, that's kind of programmed by uh, the economics of venture capitalists in terms of they try to make it fit where, hey, you're not big enough. You're not doing monster rounds. This thing can't become a billion-dollar business. And so that mentality, of course, I, I would call it uh, unicorn or bust. Yeah. You know, you see a lot of – unfortunately, I see a lot of – our people, a lot of black entrepreneurs trying to make their opportunity fit with these boom and bust investors where they don't care, obviously, uh, if nine out of 10 blow up. They don't care if your business blows up. They got 50 other bets out there. It's just a number. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm glad we're recording this because I do think that we could become a big business. And I, I mean, the approach that we're taking is actually not a it's not a radical approach. They're businesses that have been profitable and figured out how to scale without having to to take on the type of capital or the mindset that you imagine. Yeah, and no, the thing about venture is true. In many cases, they artificially uh, uh, inflate the value of the company and then have you chase it. Many of those companies fail. The many the ones that don't fail, uh, whenever there's some sort of liquidity event. They the uh, investors take their cash off top, right? So like, the model in a lot of ways doesn't work for, yeah, businesses of color, but like a bunch of businesses, right? I mean, like every day, I, I venture is not right for every sort of type of business, but it doesn't mean that you can't scale your business if you don't take in that sort of capital or have that mindset about the business. And so again, I'm glad we're recording this because I, um, you know, if we we do what I think we're we're capable of doing here, we can scale this business successfully. And we'll, we'll have done it without, you know, doing any of the kind of venture stuff. How much uh, capital have you raised, if any? No. So the first round was three million. Okay. All family offices, high net worth individual money, and it's patient capital. Okay, right? guys. Harder, so harder to so do. it's not right. coming out of big institutionalized VC, which is good. That's what I'm saying. Like this bubble crowd is like, I got this fancy name in my cap table. I got all this money. Yep. And. Of course, the, the the way the economics works in terms of in a bubble environment, uh, at least a lot of folks, uh, uh, our people specifically, will see headlines of this entrepreneur raised thirty million. This entrepreneur raises twenty million. Mm -hmm. They don't understand 
when that business is sold and all those investors are they in take that their cap money first. table, if you're trying to create wealth, the the number is not the headline on the you know the PR strategy or the the magazine. Really, you want to be looking at, hey, if this business IPOs are sold, I'm taking home X. And these people are not going to be making, you know, 95 percent of the value creation. A lot of entrepreneurs need to spend more time really understanding that business because it is a business. Right. So you're betting heavily on uh, on a couple of, uh, you know, call it 10 companies for sake of this conversation, knowing that one of them is going to be successful. Right. And the way that that VCs hedge the risk is that once the once there is some sort of liquidity event, their cash is coming out first. Right? And so if you don't prove your thesis, it doesn't mean that they don't get paid, right? So say that they thought the comp- they value the company at 100 million and it sells for 80, well that 80 is theirs. Right? And so like what po- folks don't understand that no, it's very difficult as the entrepreneur, as the founder to make a ton of money in that system unless the company is valued at more than what they they raise what you raise you know money at. Uh, you mentioned patient capital. Can you uh, first explain to our audience what patient capital is, and can you also explain when you tapped H and W's and patient capital? Were, was it intentional in terms of hey, I'm not even trying to go get that bubble Silicon Valley money. I know what flavor of capital I need at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I'm raising another round right now and have the same perspective. So patient capital really is, you know, you're going to to investors, you have a model and you have um, a thesis about when there will be a liquidity event. But what you're asking you know, for them to understand about the business is that it's not going, it, it might not follow the same three to five year um, uh, horizon, right? And so there are a lot of investors that are, they want their investment to do more than market, right? But aren't necessarily um, looking for for unicorn status in three years, right? That doesn't mean that the business won't grow to be as big as, you know, any company that you'll you'll see out there. But patient capital a lot of times is not looking for that that return in um, in really really short timelines. And what was your uh, process in finding the the right investors in? Kind of, you know, tell us about any rejections you got. I was rejected ninety-seven times. I counted them. We were we were rejected regularly. Those, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. So I mean, no, that's part of the game. When you start to try to raise money, you're not a fit for most people. That's we were I'm not right. a fit. But I mean, this is the other thing. If you're building this, I, I believe this. If you're building something that's disruptive, then people shouldn't be able to understand it immediately. From the like, if they can, you should be worried about that idea, right? So. We took that as a sign that we we were actually onto something rather than being frustrated by the process because yeah I, again I mean you kind of have to be the crazy one in the room if what you're building is actually something that's different if it isn't and people get it instantly yeah I mean it's probably been done before I want to repeat uh, what you said I think it's powerful uh, this brother said he was rejected ninety seven times ninety seven and so. We have to understand, if you're going to play this game, this game, do not start the game. If you're going to start going into uh, investor meetings and you get three or four rejections and you start saying white folks this, white folks that, and, you know, the system's rigged, this is not the game for you. Don't even start this game. No. Right? Like, <laughs> like, I mean, you got to think about how hard it is for someone to get a dollar out of you, Right. I mean, there's two things that I think that every entrepreneur has to do. The 
first thing is you got to put all your chips on the table first. I put everything that I had. My business partner, we put everything that we had. So by the time I started talking to you. When you say everything, what are you what are you talking about? I mean, every single penny that I could possibly find, plus credit cards, plus anything that. I you mean, put capital I put into your business. Imme- yeah. Immediately, right? Like, so it is very difficult to ask people to pay you when or to give you any sort of amount of their money when you haven't done the same, right? So we pushed every, we put all of our chips to the center and then had a really, really informed conversation with them about why we thought that they would be a good partner for what we were doing. Understanding that the majority of people, even if they thought the concept was okay, were still going to say no. Because getting someone to give you their money is one of the hardest things that you can possibly do in any context, go ask people in nonprofit space, right? It's really difficult to get people to, I mean, it's it's in part strategy plus an emotional connection a lot of times. And what folks don't get is that they're most of the time investing in you as a person and not even really the concept. When you're going through your process and getting 97 rejections, you're not thinking about, hey, if I was white, I would have gotten an acceptance by now. What's your psychology going through those rejections as a black man? So, look, I, I think that there are certain realities about being black and raising capital, right? The numbers don't lie. It is harder to raise capital in our community than what you see in others, right? So, that, I mean, I want to acknowledge that. But, no, I believe that I was the person that was onto something different, right? And so if you don't have confidence as an entrepreneur, you don't have anything, especially early, right? You have to believe in yourself more than, more than anybody else. Even if... As you say, I believe that the institutionalized white supremacy and discrimination is there. It's there. People like uh, not only is it there, uh, but you have the extra thing where, hey, they don't see us a lot. Uh, people want to invest with people they can joke with and, and geek out with. Yeah, and there's a confirmation on, 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 bias. Too, yeah, yeah, I mean. on, yeah, on their terms. So even if the white supremacy, the discrimination, the boys club, the... Uh, I'm comfortable. Uh, I don't see you. Even if all that stuff is true, you are better off not dwelling on it. And, and, and let me just add another point is this is, I believe, uh, speaks to the difference of our a lot of our brothers and sisters who come from Jamaica and Nigeria, where, you know, we've been uh, oppressed in a way where. There's a lot of baggage in terms of, you know, the system is on us and the system is against us. And it's true. It's there. Yeah, the system is. But if that Nigerian, that uh, 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 sister from Cameroon or that brother from Jamaica, if they come over here without that thinking, usually or what I have seen in my life is that they kick our ass. They kick I'm African-American, of course, but if that black woman or man comes from Jamaica, comes from Nigeria, and does not see the stuff that we have been institutionalized with in terms of the stuff that we've seen, they're going to kick it. Sometimes it's better for you not to even see it, for you to go after and build the institutions that you need to build. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to, to be scared of something that you, you haven't seen before right and so no i mean institutionalized racism and i mean it's its impact is real right i mean i mean you spend depending on who we're talking about you know decades 
trying to get a person to believe something about themselves. And it's very difficult when that person has an idea that they suddenly forget, like, several decades worth of training that suggested them otherwise right so yeah no i do think that what you see is a confidence a lot of a lot of entrepreneurship in its early stages is is a is about your mindset right it's about how you're approaching the problem and the overall mentality that you have while going into battle every day and that's how i look at when you're trying to start a business it's a battle every single day and so yeah if you're coming into that that battle with a ton of confidence or really with a lack of um you know full understanding about uh how the world perceives you and your limit, you know, your perceived limitations that like that, that's a powerful thing not to have, right? Like when you, when you walk into the room each day. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of this though is about, is about confidence. And that's, so that's what I would tell myself through those 97 rejections. It's just like, you keep your, keep rolling. What was the most memorable rejection? A four hour long meeting that I had where, um, at the end of the meeting, the guy said, so what is this? After talking for four hours. So, yeah, I mean. He, he said. Uh, he said. He, so I, we had a four hour long meeting at the end of the four hours. He said, so what is it? He had not been paying attention through four hours of conversation around all of what the and business was. What do you was. think that was? I had an experience similar to that. It, it People look. The, the the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make is that, and the thing that we just accepted is that nobody cares and nobody has the time. So even when they've agreed to have a meeting with you, you uh, they still don't care. You didn't take it kind of personal. It wasn't like a brother, like, hey. I mean, it was, what right? You, okay, it you was, think, it, it, it you was, think but, like this was just. It was, but like, look, I mean, look at your own day, right? And And imagine that there's this foreign person sitting there talking to you about this concept, right? And, you know, you got other stuff going on. You've got a business and kids and, you know, a job and like it's you got other stuff happening, right? And so it's very very difficult to push a person past one just connecting to what you're talking about, let alone getting them to actually cut a check for it, right? You got that's that's a hard road. Yeah, this brings up an experience I had where uh we were talking to investors and the CEO of Demand Media. They changed their name now. Uh, I think their ticker symbol was DMD. So we're talking in New York in the office, and this guy comes like an hour and a half late, and you know I start uh, running my presentation, and I'm going off of notes on my presentation. He's like, "Are you really going to go through the presentation?" But this guy was the biggest dick that you've ever seen uh, in terms of the arrogance. It's a lot of times uh, that's intentional. Like, I mean, a lot of potential investors, which you'll see if you're out in that game, the again, their their thesis is that they're investing in you, not in the business. And so I was in conversations where they were intentionally trying to rattle me. Like they were doing things specifically to see how I would react to them. And a lot of those times, like those things were rude. And they were trying to figure out, I mean, because they're, they're, they're trying to figure out like, hey, are you going to go? Like black men on me? Well, well, <laughs> well, it's well, you're the, the question is, it's like, so being an entrepreneur there's pressure and there's people that are rude. There's customers that are going to not, I mean, like, so this, what, this, what do you do in this, this? What do you do in this so, situation? So this testing where they're, they're trying to put pressure on you all the time that, that you didn't take that as racial. It, like it was just something like, Hey, I'm, I'm taking it as other entrepreneurs get the same experience. No. So look, I, I took some of it as racial. I think that the degree to which I got, got it. I think even the degree to, to, to which they were willing to ask me questions, I thought were, were strange. Um, you know, race was was a part of it, but 
there's there's no there's no doubting that when in trying to start a business as a person of color, it is really really difficult to gain the attention and then and then expect. Uh, specifically to get people to actually cut you a check i mean the main main reason why that is is that that same way that institutional racism um harms confidence when you get into the process it also i mean builds uh uh, preconceived notions about who it is that you're speaking to right and so the the, uh, let me let me play devil's advocate sure the devil's advocate okay so your people say you guys get rejected because of uh, race, and in the black woman's case, race and gender. Yep. If you had to estimate, and I'm talking from the devil's perspective, if you had to estimate how many of those black entrepreneurs who say that I, you know, this process, this investment pitch or whatever, I was a victim of racism. I, you know, I pitched three times and I felt racism. What percentage of those cases do you feel the black entrepreneur has done the research and the homework in terms of how the game is played? Because obviously, uh, Uncle Ray Ray, our our parents, uh, obviously you're a unique case, but a lot of us come from homes where this process uh, is not intuitive, right? It's not cultural, uh, where in other communities it is cultural and, and, and they're getting kind of uh, uh, family members and, and people in their network to help them uh, and guide them through the process. But what percentage do you think, if you have to estimate, that when the black entrepreneur is up to like five rejections, they're adequately prepared in terms of the market rate, in terms of what's average, what's average in terms of entrepreneurs pitching, that, hey, these people do have the right homework. They do understand the game that it may take a hundred pitches. Uh, they do have all the, you know, how to do a really tight presentation that they are at market. So, I mean, I, I, the reason why I can't, I can't, um, buy that argument. I can't even really go that far with that argument is that, that it, it almost assumes that of those companies that, where there are white founders, that there's a level of preparation and understanding of the of the game too, right? Well, like I've been in those rooms, right? And there's not any more preparation or understanding. Have, but I don't know. On. Yeah, of course I, I we're talking about estimates, uh, and I know. So you, I mean, not very. I would I would say in total, I don't think I think that there's some legitimacy to that because there's you. This is the one thing that I I will, I will never say when we're, when we're talking about. Um, issues that have have to do with race. I have not seen, right, where people of color are overwhelmingly unprepared, not understanding. I mean, in fact, the companies that I, we see out of the gathering spot every day, I think are some of the hottest companies in the in the country, right? And they're still not able to get to the, the same level of funding, right? And part of that, yes, I, I think is very much has to do with the race and gender of the founders. Right, because there are companies. You believe, you believe all the homework in the game is there for them for them to get the same treatment of what other folks are doing. I, I don't believe that companies that we see getting invested in right now, all of them know all of the game either. 
right? And and because of that, but right, is I, there? Is, but is there a no, uh, not my a mind. discrepancy? Not really. No, yeah. not in my mind. I mean, I think there are entrepreneurs of all all shades and <laughs> and colors that don't know anything about the process. So some if, are getting funded and some aren't. So if I played the uh, devil's advocate here, I would say, hey, the data shows that when you factor in affirmative action white women benefit uh, when you factor in affirmative action when a lot of the black students and not just black but i'm just going to say black here uh but when the black student you give the black student affirmative action and they go to a stanford or a Penn or harvard what the academic establishment and data argues is that they don't do as well as the other students yeah two problems they're not prepared they're not prepared two problems so the first problem is that the largest benefit the biggest group that benefits the benefits the most from affirmative action this is this is a numerical thing are white women right so like white women are actually benefit most from affirmative action programs sure. than anybody fact check me White women are the biggest beneficiaries from affirmative action programs in the country, right? That's 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 the first problem. The second problem is, I mean, look, people of color, right, at predominantly white institutions. This is the question that we don't ask enough. There, there are certain rules, certain standards that are put in place that we treat as neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality. Somebody wrote the test. There's a point of view and a perspective behind every single curriculum that's out there, right? And so for you to suggest that... Uh, people of color are not performing as well, right? There's only really two ways to go. Are they're, not prepared. Well, uh, let me they're, just. They're, they're going to say, yeah, you've got to say they're not prepared, or maybe three options. They're not prepared. They're not as intelligent as the rest of the group. But a third, third very, very real variable that we don't pay attention to is the fact that, I mean, there's a set of standards that, again, we, we treat it like a band aid, like every, you know, that it's neutral for everybody, but like, Band-aids in and of themselves are not neutral. They're, they are. Um, there's a target customer just by the way that the the band-aid is um, is uh, colored, right? That is for that. Well, maybe say in contrast, that is not for people of color, right? And so, what what is the difference in if you in that context than what you see in universities, right? I don't believe that the, that attending. A, a Catholic institution in Washington, D.C. that's been around since 1789 that didn't allow people that look like me to go for the majority of its history, even at this point. The majority of the time Georgetown has been there as an institution, people that look like me still could not could not attend. That, that rubric is all of a sudden neutral just because I show up on campus. Okay, so you're using a term that I want to talk about. You're sure. saying people of color and... I know this is a, a a popular term, and I may use it selectively or sometimes, but why should black people where, hey, we came over here on slave ships. Hey, we fought on the front lines of the civil rights movement. These laws that were broken down in the United States, that's us. Uh, that we have led the charge uh, for everybody, even the white woman. Yep. Uh, and we have not commensurately benefited from all our struggle and banging against America and the forces that are against freedom and justice quality. So we've been on the front lines. And so the problem I have and it's not you, but I see a lot of folks, when we use 
terms like people of color and this. It's like we got a big rainbow where we, we're, we're bringing oh. everybody in terms of talking about some of these issues. Oh. But are, do you feel like the use, obviously you use it, but do you see a risk that, hey, when we're talking about our community issues and that's in most cases our priority a lot of us that's our priority hey uh, i can't save everybody and this is the community that i belong to and that i'm passionate about and that needs probably the most help right so you want to prioritize black folks at least for a lot of folks but do you see a political issue where we may be hurting ourselves if too many of us are out there not being specific meaning that I'm going out to rescue the black, black woman folks. and the black man. Yeah, I mean, so... Okay. Or this is this is who I'm talking to. Yeah, no, I mean, so for for me, um, I mean, it's an, inter- it's an interesting perspective. It's really an interchangeable term for me. I say people of color, I say black, I mean, African-American, whatever. I mean, like, How is uh, it interchangeable, though? I mean, and when, I, when I'm using it, right, I mean, it doesn't... I'm, I'm normally talking about... Black folks, which which I have no no um, hesitancy in in saying at all, but I do think right to to a certain extent um, in this context that for many of the issues that we're talking about, I mean a rising tide raises all 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 ships in this context, right? And I don't have problem with with external inclusion to um, because I mean look, I think the the fallacy of some of those arguments is that yeah. Hit longer history here, um, but from a from a you know general social condition. Now, I mean, when I'm talking about folks of color, and yeah, if you want to add some other folks or other other uh, groups into that, you know, that bucket. I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know how how uh, well this is the situation, and, and and this is where, in some cases, I know this is tough. Some people probably stop listening to the podcast that we deserve to be on the bottom. And let me explain that. Is that this is more of our our educated folks who have access to information, they have experiences where, let's say black people are army. And hey, you know, we're trying to uh, elevate our community, elevate our people, but these political terms come in and you start seeing our leaders start, you know, they're using words like diversity. And so I have witnessed a lot of folks coming out of the, mainly the Silicon Valley establishment, but across the United States where black folks are using the term diversity, 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 diversity. You can't bang. I believe we can't bang for diversity, a undefined and ambiguous diversity when 53 or so percent of white women are voting MAGA. That you have the data and the statistics in Silicon Valley is when you're pushing diversity, you're really helping that white woman. Okay, you're, you're, you're in, in a lot of cases, you're helping that MAGA woman. So if our situation and experience is unique, mm-hmm. why can't we be specific? And why, why, when you're using diversity, everybody's coming along. So now when the uh, the big wallets and the establishment in Silicon Valley, when they talk, they'll say diversity, diversity. I don't know what that means. And it's starting to mean black folks are just a little piece of it. This is really about 
white in terms of the data, in terms of what actually happens, because if the white woman can go through diversity and she's wealthy and she has connections and, and, and uh, uh, her community didn't face an onslaught of mass incarceration, if you give her that benefit of diversity, she's going to kill your community in terms of elevating hers. I mean, I think that I think diversity as a as a word is yeah. I agree with you. There's there's not a the definition that we often use or allow to be used in political context is wrong, right? And so, to me, at a basic level, diversity gets down to to, to two really simple ideas. For one, a community to be diverse, there needs to be an equal exchange of information and an, and an interest in that equal exchange. Again, I don't believe that things most of the things that we call neutral are actually neutral, and so. I think I mean that's that's one of one one way that I think the in diversity talks is wrong. Second second thing that I'd say Do you think it's problematic? This does this doesn't reflect your values. I can't bang for every other group. I don't know your situation, I don't know what you come from, but I know I'm connected to people who come from the projects. I know my people were enslaved. Mm -hmm. I know that we were on the front lines in the civil rights movement, after the civil rights movement. Yep. I know this government came after my leaders yep. and, 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 and in some cases killed our, the, our leaders. I can't bang for everybody else because I don't have confidence you guys are going to bang for me. Is, is, is that wrong? Is, would that be a moral point of view? I think coalition building is important, right? I think a mistake of any any group is to not look at where there there can be alliances built, right? And so, yeah, to a certain extent, I mean, I think that we have to be continually looking for new ways to to uh, to build stronger and larger coalitions. And that a lot of times the issues that we're talking about, different history, a lot of times manifest themselves very similarly. Or the way that we're treated is, is um, the way that they're treated is often kind of mimics the way that we're treated a lot of times. This last point about diversity, what I was going to say was that what we should be fighting for, I think a really easy and objective standard to look at is, does your company or organization represent the world or at least the this nation's pop, uh, population? So so if you're at you're at a tech company and you say, hey, you know, we're really diverse, but 1% of your, your, um, your employee base is black, well, I think black folks make up 13% of the United States population generally. And so for your community to be diverse at minimum, right, what you should be looking for is fighting for a standard where 13% of, of your employee base represents the country that's there. That's a really easy and objective way to look at the issue that that takes out all of the, the fluff around, you know, let's let's look at let's look at what what um, how those groups like how much of the population that they represent. I believe you can do a lot of coalition building but when you're speaking about us and kind of the priority in dealing where this problem is kind of mag magnified i think you could you could build alliances you could be respectful for other movements you can even speak up for other movements but i still think that in most cases we need to be more specific if we're thinking strategically about uplifting Black folks. I don't disagree with you about the specificity, but I don't, but I, again, I don't, this is another one of those like either or situations for me. I think that you can be very specific about the needs and issues of your community while also building a coalition with, with other groups that may be experiencing similar, although um, in some ways, you know, 
other forms of discrimination that don't manifest themselves the way that it happens in your community. So no, I, I agree. I mean, saying that you know black folks are are affected by you know this issue specifically in this way is never a bad way to frame an argument. But I think it's it's short sighted to not compare that um, compare compare that statistic to other minorities. Right. That that may be facing more. You know, you're you, again, you're building a stronger coalition. And I, I think in many ways, a stronger argument for why whatever it is that we're talking about should be changed. You're expanding to D.C. and you already mentioned that you're profitable. You're doing the damn thing. You have a business as profitable as popping. Uh, you're expanding to D.C. What do you have to say about entrepreneurs who have kind of trigger fingers of launching multiple product lines, new stuff. They got too much stuff going on, and one thing has not popped. Have you seen that uh, in terms of just observing the ecosystem? And how did you think about the right time to take your platform to another city? I, I mean, I the whole right time thing. I don't know. There's never really good good time to to, to uh, expand. No, I mean, look, risk is risk, right? And that risk is gonna. It's going to be here today or tomorrow, whatever, <laughs> whenever you decide to go do it. I mean, I do think it's important to try to make sure that you fundamentally understand your business before you, you start to expand. I can say that with confidence. I understand what we're doing here, and I understand how that, that what but we're you, doing can translate to other, other markets. But you don't think there should be a process where, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself, they're very creative, mm -hmm. right? And so you have these different ideas. You have not seen uh, entrepreneurs saying I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, but the first business idea, our product, it's it nowhere, it doesn't have the traction it needs to be. So yeah. you're kind of, you're, you're, you're spreading your, your risk out when you don't, when you really want your risk to be concentrated to give the first idea a fair shot. I mean, no, you, you haven't really seen that. No, no. I mean, I, I actually am, that last part that you said there, I actually agree with. I mean, I think that most successful entrepreneurs, if you look at how they um, how they started their business, it is about very concentrated risk in a specific area. And I do think that, like, look at the end of the day, this is all about execution. Ideas are super cheap. Like you, like we could come up with an idea right now at this table. So that isn't like having an idea is. There's nothing to that. It's about your ability to execute upon that idea. And I think we mistake those two. Those, those There's a distinction there that a lot of times I think that we conflate. All right. Oh, I've got an idea. Therefore, I have a business. No, you have to you have to be able to execute upon that idea in a way that makes people understand that, like, it has moved from pure ideation into a now a, a, um, a stage where people um, can, you know, can buy or you know whatever it is that you do um, that, you know, they're able to actually uh, interact with the business. That's the larger problem, right? I think that we have way too many ideas out there and not enough people who are actually starting companies. What's the pitch to the entrepreneurs uh, and professionals who want to come work at tech companies, startups? What's your pitch? Hey, don't go to Silicon Valley. In most cases, everybody's different, but in most cases, come to ATL. That's, that stuff is old. The, the opportunities are now being kind of distributed uh, across other cities like Atlanta. What's the pitch that I'm going to ATL to set up my company? No hotter, there's no hotter city in the country right now than Atlanta, right? And so Quantify that. I mean, I'll, I'll look at it from an industry perspective, right? So you, you have legacy companies like 
Coca-Cola and Chick-fil-A and Home Depot, right, that have started here and expanded across the globe, right, some of the larger businesses that you're going to find. You have a creative community. I mean, Atlanta doesn't get enough credit for how long it's been creating music that the world listens to. But, I mean, you're in a you're in a cultural capital and, and, a, and a capital where people are, are producing um, the music that the world listens to. Behind that now, most of the films that are being shot that we all watch are being filmed down here. Right, so you have a thriving creative uh, community, and then as I said before, I think that we have some of the hottest startups that are that are in the country here. There's no better ecosystem to be in where the corporate community can meet the entrepreneurial community that can meet the creative community, and the synergy. What happens at the intersection of those industries is unlike what you're going to see in any other um, city. Plus, I mean, if you argue, if you buy the argument that Atlanta's largest export is its culture. There's no better place right now to be able to start an idea and have that idea scale um, and and be taken you know across the country. So and what um, about talent? And in terms of hey, I got to hire I mean, a lot of engineers. What yeah, about talent? I mean, well, I mean, it also it also is a city that has um, more universities and top tier universities that are that are spitting out that type of talent than most places that you're going to find. Right? I mean, right from where we're sitting right now, we are across the street from Georgia Tech, down the street from Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark. Emory's around the corner, right? And there's a, a host of uh, universities that are just north of the city. Georgia State's around the corner, too. I mean, so, like, uh, from an education standpoint and, and people who are um, here, there's, I mean, I, I, I flip this question a lot, around a lot to people. What city can you go to where all those things are happening at the same time and there's money to, in, in that city? Right? Because there's actually an ability in this city now to, to raise money here. What do you got to say to that geek brother who says ATL? is a joke because all the VCs are in Silicon Valley. If you're, uh, you want to be an actor, you want to get in Hollywood, you need to go to Hollywood. So if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going where all the money is. What do you got to say to that? There's an article that dropped in Inc. today that was talking about how, um, and pointing out profiling a number of companies that were, that are down here, based here, right? And so I would just say to that person, without really much of a, a long argument, they're just wrong. They're companies that have been, I mean, one of the members of the club but here. But it's not so. wrong that there's more capital, investment capital in Silicon Valley than here. Come on. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, 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 no. There's, 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 yeah, there's definitely. But, I mean, it's, it's just like what you see happening in the music industry and I think what, which, what we saw in film. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get in early in, in, in a, in a uh, community that's changing, you come to Atlanta for that same problem. Historically, you would say, I mean, if you want to be an actor or if you want to become a producer, go to uh, Hollywood. But now people are saying, move to Atlanta, right? Because we're, we're, we're shooting more in many cases than what they are out in Hollywood. Yeah, if that point of view is out there uh, in terms of my hypothetical geek question, uh, the right way to look at it uh, is that, hey, if Silicon Valley, if everybody else, 9 out of 10 people think that they have to go to Silicon Valley, they may have more capital, but it's so crowded, it negates the opportunity out, out, out there. And then so ATL may have less capital, but it's less crowded in terms of so many companies vying for the, the capital. It's le- Yeah, it's less crowded, but if like, you're black or person of color, whatever term you want to use, and you're trying to raise capital, look, the reality is is that, I mean, and there's a ton of articles written about this, but there's a pattern to 
companies who who's getting invested in. And a lot of times what people are doing is investing in people that look like the last group of people that were successful out there. So the thing, the narrative down here, if you're, again, if, if you um, are, are black, is that, I mean, a member of our club started a company here in Atlanta and sold that company to Amazon. I would, I mean, go to a city where that type of story is being told and Paul yeah, Judge. Yeah, yeah, Paul, is Paul Judge, from your point of view, is he considered the Don of Black Tech and ATL? Are kind of is there like a figure where hey, you know, this person has done the damn thing, and kind of they've been in the game, and kind of you know they're 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 looked up to. Yeah, I mean, are there any kind of personalities or no? It's just like no. There, there are several, several personalities down here. So I know I think Paul's Paul's one of them. I mean, and and uh, you know work work with with uh, with with Paul regularly. We were actually um, in business together for a music conference and festival that's down here. But I think Jewel, the person I just mentioned, Jewel Burks, is uh, the founder of Partpick that sold to Amazon, and and you know that's another that's another entrepreneur figure down here that that. Um, you know, I, those are the folks that I point to, for sure. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Where can people check out you and your company? Uh, so you can find us online at thegatheringspot.club, on social media, at the Gathering Spots on all platforms. If you're looking for me, uh, sometimes I'm saying a, a little something different. I'm spot on RW on all platforms. All right. I'd like to thank Ryan Wilson for coming on the show. Let's go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.